So what have you, how have you, how have you been, Nick? Have you watched anything good? Um, well, besides those are Taxi Driver, those are those are two different questions. Um, <laughs> I know I'll, that's how I do things. My 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 anecdote of the episode is going to be that uh, I'm hopped up on pain meds right now. Ooh, fun! Um, for fun or for because, or for 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 necessity. Um. For for necessity, <laughs> I tend to not like. I'm not a big pill guy or or pain management it. guy. Yeah. My my idea of pain management is like bite down on a stick, rub some um, dirt on it. Right, totally. Um, You're such a manic. I about two weeks ago, uh, my kids were climbing in a tree in our front yard, and I thought I'm Uh-oh. totally young enough to still do this, <laughs> and tried to climb up in the tree with my kids. <laughs> you silly bastard. Put my hands up on the big branch, push myself up, and I'm like, ah, okay, I gotta get my legs up. So then I laid across the branch. That's it. It was just me putting my weight on a branch, and my ribs, like, popped. Oh, my God. (laughs) Your ribs popped. from. I can't say anything. When I was in high school, maybe it was beginning of college, uh, you you ever just, like, bend over the wrong way and pick something up? Oh, sure, like, yeah. I picked up a lamp for my mom. Like, I didn't bend up my knees. I just bent over and grabbed <laughs> it, and, like, I, I p- pulled something in my back. And then to top it all off, how old I'm getting. When I, I was uh, around Christmas Eve, I was really sick. And I was, like, sick for two and a half weeks. Ugh. At one point, when I was getting close to being being over it and I still had a cough, I coughed so hard, I pulled something in my back. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally I, done that. <laughs> and then I asked my chiropractor, so I didn't feel so bad. I was like, is this normal? Does this happen? He's like, yeah, yeah, everything is connected. I was like, good, good. Good, okay. Good, you know, good to know. <laughs> oh, I hurt myself real bad. How'd you do that? I coughed. <laughs> That's how I felt. That's how I felt. Right. It's like, ah. Uh. And then, like, I'd go to work the next day and be like, oh, my back really hurts. Go, like, oh, what'd you do? I coughed. <laughs> I mean, I was. You did what now? Was in a drunken bar brawl with <laughs> some real bruisers. You should see the other guy. <laughs> um, in, in response to your other question, um, I have watched a lot, but what's sticking out in my mind right now is we uh, binge-watched The Witcher. Okay. I heard good Uh, things. I'm not going to lie. It's it's not high on my list because everyone won't stop talking about it, and I'm that guy, but I've heard good things. Uh, It was. It was very good, and I did not. I was not getting a lot of input. I was seeing a couple of, you know memes on the on the internets but other than that i wasn't getting a lot of oh you gotta watch that you gotta watch that kind of input so i was gotcha. able to watch it with a clear uh palette that's good the, the two things that i guess that i've been most impressed by because I, I watch a lot but um one uh on hulu for anyone listening um i'm a big fan of the musical group the wu-tang clan and um the rizza one of the founding members, he created a TV show for Hulu about their their rise to stardom. It's awesome. called Wu Tang and American Saga, and it all it starts off from the from the early days of um, when uh, in in Staten Island when unfortunately they had to sell drugs to keep f- um, uh, m- uh, food on the table. Uh, up until them recording their first demo, and it, I'm, not, I'm not finished with the first season yet, but it all leads down to them recording their first record, and uh, and how all the members kind of met, how they met each other, how a lot of them grew up together, and how a lot of them actually didn't like each other for a very long time, and how that all came to be. Because I'm always a sucker for 
um, music stories stories that feature music whether it be like i like biopics a lot or yeah. it makes this one interesting so the rizza he's done a lot of directing uh well not a lot of directing he's done some like he directed the man with the iron fist i think one and two um and he's also worked with a lot of filmmakers like he he did a lot he any any uh any original score in the two kill bill films he did for quentin tarantino okay um but what's interesting about it is he came in and did the show. I think even Ron Howard might have something to do with the show, which is so funny to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like he's the, he's the showrunner behind it. And he's getting a lot of really young, talented directors to come up and do it. So there's really interesting uh, aesthetic choices, in it, and I've just been hooked on it. But it's only a ten episode season, so I've been trying to like pace myself. I watch right. one, maybe two episodes a day because I like the weight we've talked about this i just yeah, yeah. I, I and actually that is truly how how i watched witcher also it's yeah like i think one day i watched three episodes but with that exception it was either one or two half hour shows i can do a little bit more but for our shows for me to like i, I our shows are like it's are weird like it's tough for me to i can sit down and watch a movie no problem but like an hour show for some reason it's, it's different mentally for me um yeah. so i need i need to pace things out i can't just watch the same thing all day I've got too much ADD for that. Well, I guess that's the best place. That's the best places ever to uh, read my intro. Well, I, I'm actually I am going to pause you because oh. um, it, in my excitement for season four, I think we're at a point where like some like new business opening notes is appropriate because we okay. have. I think we have a lot to say. Okay. So with that. Um, welcome to season four, everyone. Yeah, season four of the Shameless Picture Show. And that's our well, new theme song. Well, actually, my, my thought process was, is I would read my, you know, hello and welcome, and then we talk about new business. I didn't want to ruin your flow. Okay, no, 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 so no, that's no, how we'll good. do it. We're good. That's how, that's how we'll do it. it. All right, so, <laughs> sip a cough for the working man, even though my coffee's almost done. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and with me as always is a man who's a prophet and a pusher, partly truth, partly fiction, a walking contradiction. <laughs> Nick Richards. That might be the most accurate one yet. Even, <laughs> ooh, no, that should not be the most accurate one yet. That's problematic. Very much so. So this is season four, Nick. I honestly didn't think we were going to get past season one, to be well, completely honest with you. <laughs> you need to have more faith in us. <laughs> Well, to be no. fair, the, the podcast I did before this, we got like four episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with new the business. new season, we have some yeah some new business. Um, one is our brand new look. Yeah. Um, because we have a badass new logo. Yes, we do. Which is much better than the than the white and gray garbage that I came up with. Hey, that white and gray garbage got us through three seasons. It, 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 it got us to limp along, but thanks to uh, your beautiful wife, Amanda Byers. Yes, 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 um, yes. 
she designed us the coolest fucking logo that I've ever seen, and, and I'm so excited about I it. I gave her so little to go off of, because originally she did a really cool logo that I liked that she wasn't super happy with. That was a movie ticket. I remember showing you that once upon a time. Yep. And I just never got around to, cha- to the point of cha- changing things over, and then when I did, I realized it didn't, it didn't like form right for all like the logos and stuff, and I got frustrated and said, fuck it. <laughs> and I just never did it. But then she, which is good, because... She ultimately told me one time she didn't love it. She didn't dislike it, but she thought she could do better. And she's like, well, what kind of are you looking for for a logo? And I was like, I have no idea. Something movie related. And at one point, like, <laughs> she's trying to draw on, like, film reels and stuff. And I was like, it just wasn't working. Like, we are trying to do a projector. And I was like, what if we do, like, an old drive-in logo? It was... And then it, we started looking inspired. up. Yeah, we started looking up uh, ideas and everything, and and actually, and she made that logo. And but I think she did the banner first, which is like the starry skies and everything, because she wanted yep. to see how it would look. And it's just like that's it. I just feel I, I just got the feeling of like uh, like warm summer air and crickets and watching a movie outside, and I was like, ah, oh, this is nice. Yeah. This is nice. Cool. So. And and so what that will lead to, and mm-hmm. we, we got a couple of uh, samples in, but that means we are going to have merch. Merch, 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 merch. And it's exclusive so, for the Patreon audience. Merch, merch. merch. <laughs> Which leads us to our next announcement. <laughs> we're on Patreon. Yeah, we're on Patreon. And... Uh, I, I watched it at a weird time. I watched it before we were even back for the season just to see if there'd be any people who are interested in donating. And we get a couple patrons, which is yeah. extremely cool. And we're going to give them shout-outs at the end of the episode. Or actually, um, fuck it. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. I yeah. love that idea. So we got two amazing patrons. So actually, first, let me let me explain that we have three different uh, Patreon tiers. Our tiers are, and I, of course, named them after a movie theater because that's what I do. Um, our first tier, which is the one dollar tier, it's concession stand, um, and I put I put a quote with every single one because I'm a nerd. Uh, and the quote I enjoyed on that, one, that and could not uh, identify what they were from. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where they all are from, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, and on that one, you get a thank you message. Um, and if you want to see what the quotes are, you're going to have to go to the Patreon and, and oh, see. Oh, check it out yourself, yeah. you sneaky bastard. So everyone who joins, just even for a dollar, gets a thank you message. They, you know, you get a thank you for being part of, for supporting us. You know, just And something I want to point out, I know, you know, I back a lot of these kind of Patreon and Kickstarter and type of things. And I'm always a little hesitant to back at the $1 level because, like, I'm, maybe it's my Midwest nice coming out. Like, I don't want them to think that I only value you at a dollar. Mm-hmm. Like, we totally understand the budgets are tight. And you backing us at one dollar, if that's all you can do, is is so huge to us. Like, please don't be hesitant to back at the one dollar level if that's what feels right for you and your budget. That That's a... Like, we're going from nothing. So $1 a month, it's super affordable. It auto-pulls from your bank account, I believe. Uh, 
and if you, if you set it up that way, and it's a huge sign of support. So uh, we would love to have you in at that one dollar level. Yeah, and like every dollar that goes to this is not going to make me and Nick rich, because trust me, <laughs> that kind of money is not going to be coming in. We're not. It's going to make us less poor, so that yeah. we're not paying. Honestly, like everything that's it's going to paying for overhead, paying for our paying to for our our housing, Libsyn, like not our physical housing, but like for our Libsyn, hosting. our hosting yeah. website and to, to kick back on the more merch and uh, that's also ultimately the biggest thing uh, right. next like year our, I'll, I'll add in like our goal at this phase of of this project is to break even that is like that would be amazing yeah we're not trying to necessarily we weren't make going money. out of pocket every month right yeah we're not necessarily trying to make money we're just trying not to spend <laughs> our own money anymore um, our next tier is the five dollar tier it's the auditorium on that tier, you get a little bit more. You get, uh, you get, you still get the thank you message, but then you get a, an exclusive shameless picture show sticker and bonus content access. Uh, I'm going to specify the one dollar tier. Will, will any messages that I type up, I, I've decided that I think I'm going to make available to all tiers, even the dollar tier. But the bonus audio content will be available for the five dollar tier. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and like some of the things that you might get through the one dollar tier, like the the, the write up stuff, is a lot of times I post to uh, I write for a couple websites. You'll get early access to that stuff, just so you can see it before anyone else. So like if I I'm gonna be writing a discoveries list very soon for a website called Rupert Pumpkin Speaks, and uh, I'm gonna it's you which is also a Scorsese reference. Uh, <laughs> the Patreon audience can see it first. So, very cool. And then this one I originally did as a joke, but someone jumped up, jumped on it. <laughs> I did a fifty dollar tier, um, and I did this one because sometimes I have a lot of people saying, "Oh, I really, really would really love to be on the show." And it's not like I'm trying to like you have to pay to be on the show, but like it's, it's not it's, pay to play, but it, it could be if you'd yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like I get like uh, and people like, they want certain things talked about, and we can only fit so much time in. So honestly, I put this one as like you can kind of become a part of the show, whether you want like uh, uh, whether you uh, so on the fifty dollar tier, which is the projection booth, you get a personalized episode. Which any topic you want us to talk about, we will watch. Even if it's a movie we have seen, if you want to hear us talk about a movie, we will talk about it. Or a guest spot where you can be on the show with me and Nick. Um, uh, you also get a shameless picture show button, the sticker, the Woo! thank you message, the personalized, all the all the bonus audio. Um, so yeah, those are our tiers for the Patreon. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, please check it out. Do we have a direct? I'm assuming we have a direct uh, URL for that. <laughs> we do. It is Patreon. www.patreon.com/slash/shamelesspictureshow. There you go. Check us out. If, if you're a listener, we would love to have your support again even if it's at that one dollar level um it it would mean the world to us and help keep us going we i think we're both michael and i are feeling a lot of um uh, momentum at this moment in the podcast and that would only help keep that momentum going forward which is going to make better content and more content for you guys to hear 100 percent and uh let's give the shout out to the two patreon the patrons that jumped yes. on right from the right from the beginning we have a friend of mine uh named robert ward aka flounder 
That's always the name <laughs> I've known him by. I actually, it was a couple years into knowing him before I found out that his name was not actually Flounder. Um, <laughs> and then um, Joshua Barnes, uh, a longtime listener of the show uh, since pretty early on, they both kicked in right away. So we want to thank you both. An extra special thanks for being the first two to jump in. <laughs> oh, and when you and the stickers will be going out. So if if you haven't gotten them by the time this episode comes out, they will be going out. They'll you should be getting them soon, and there will be a personalized message in there with you oh. as well. Cool. And my last bit of new news, other than we have some other surprises, I think that we'll be unveiling over the course of this season as we surprises. finish up some side projects. But um. One more thing. This might be my favorite piece of uh, new news. Um, new news is new news. Old news is old news. Old, old, any old business. Um, I felt that we needed a a term for our fans, right? Every every yeah. great pe- the the two that I listen. I've been listening to my favorite murder a lot, and they're murderinos, which is a Simpsons reference. Yes, it is. Um, and uh, Critical Role, everybody that listens to that religiously, are called Critters. So I am both a murderino and a critter. So I, I would like to propose, obviously this is more in the fans' hands, but I'm going to call you all shame listeners. Shame uh, listeners! Oh my god, how did I not think of that? <laughs> oh and that my is, god. I, I have my girl Raina to thank for that. that that's the term shame she came up with. listeners. So thank you for tuning in, shame listeners. I don't know why I didn't think of that. That's amazing. Thank you, Ray. And with that, what are we watching today, Michael? Or not watching. What did we watch, Michael, that we're going to discuss today? Well, since season four is a big deal for us, we and like I said before, I honestly didn't think we'd make it past a year. But we, we wanted to come back with a bang. A movie that's been on my shame list. I, I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting better at this. I'm getting better at this. <laughs> the segways uh, are tight. Thank you. Thank you. A movie that's been on my shame list since film school. And a movie I bought on Blu-ray ages ago. Just hoping we'd do an episode on Taxi Driver. Woo! So, <clears throat> the movie is about Travis Bickle is a lonely man. He can't sleep, and he can't turn off his brain. He spends his nights sitting on buses and riding trains, so he's so he's, so he might as well get paid for it. He takes the job as a taxi driver, and he's got no qualms about where he drives. Any side of town, any type of person, he'll pick them up. After all, nothing he sees in New York could be nearly as bad as the stuff he's seen in war. Travis feels the city is a sleaze-filled world of scum, and when he tries to save save i put that in quotations <laughs> a campaign worker and an underage prostitute a violent side that's been lurking within rears its ugly head the film is martin scorsese's fifth film f- fifth feature film and second collaboration of robert de niro the film's gritty story and anti-hero comes from the brain of screenwriter paul schrader who directs a movie i really love called blue collar if anyone out there hasn't seen it Ooh. Okay. Paul Schrader wrote the film as a way to comment on the person he was becoming after a low point in his life. The film's gorgeous visuals are captured by Michael Chapman, and the beautiful jazz score was the final work by famed Bernard Herrmann. I think he he finished the score, and then he died a day or two later. Oh, man. The subject matter was gritty, sometimes obscene, but Scorsese handled it with a keen eye for the experimental, and because of which the film was nominated for four Academy Awards and won the Palm Door at the 1976 Cannes Film Festival. For those of you who do not know, the Palm Door is the highest achievement at 
the at the festival de Cannes. Um, the film stars Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard, Harvey Keitel, Peter Doyle, and Albert Brooks. Roll the trailer. Taxi driver, bang, bang, bang. Can we do? You talking to me? Second call, 401 Port Alvarez, 417. One item five, final, 448. De Niro. Four and five. In Bang the Drum Slowly, the critics called him a for his performance in The Godfather Part Two, they gave him the Academy Award. Come on, man. Just get me out of here, all right? Now, Robert De Niro creates a Come terrifying on. portrait of life on the edge of madness. Tabby, just forget about this. It's nothing. Taxi Driver, a film by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, people do anything in front of a taxi driver. I mean, anything. People too cheap to, to rent a hotel room. Driver, hurry up, will you? People want to embarrass you. It's like you're not even there. It's like, you know, like a taxi driver doesn't even exist. This city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. How do you guys get to be a Secret Service man? What? Well, I was just curious, because I thought maybe I'd make a good one. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? Like 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger, maybe. Hi. I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Thanks. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know if it's weirder, you or me. You talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance okay. than this. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Jodie Foster. Albert Brooks. Harvey Keitel. Leonard Harris, Peter Boyle, Sybil Shepard, Taxi Driver. Just need a good rain to wash it all away. Yeah. Um, so this this episode is going to be funny because I feel like I did a lot of research for it and I, I did a lot of digging. I didn't take any notes just because I was trying to absorb myself in it. I, I took a lot of notes, but... Um... I have no idea how constructive these notes ended up being because I was like kind of just like scribbling random thoughts as I went. Um, Very much like Travis Bickle did in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm. <laughs> I just noticed a note, so uh, I have to add one thing to what I watched recently because I think there might be a reference in it to this film. 
Okay. Do you want to talk um, about that I, now, or do you want to bring it up when you bring it up? I'll bring it up when I bring it up. Okay. Good call. Good. Okay. <laughs> what an excellent idea. <laughs> bring it up when you bring it up. <laughs> what? I'm see. This is why I need you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. So, you. This was on your shame list. Yep, now was. I'll also uh, add the disclaimer that I have not seen it since probably early college. So I I got much more out of this viewing than I did back then. Um, with that said, what were your first impressions? What was your takeaway from Taxi Driver? So a lot happened in the couple of days from when I watched it in terms of like when I first watched it because like I've seen a lot of the Taxi Driver, for lack of better terms, ripoffs or movies inspired by Taxi Driver. So like sure. I, I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting myself into. And I've said it a couple times about movies we, we, we've done on this show where it simultaneously met expectations and also went above my expectations because it was the movie I was expecting it to be, but then more. Um, but what, what threw me at first was I was really thrown by the narrative structure of the film because I kind of gotten used to Scorsese's big films like, you know, Casino or Goodfellas or, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. And they all have like this really weird um, high kinetic pacing to it. And this film didn't have that. It didn't even feel like the type of film I was expecting from Scorsese because it was so early in his career and he was experimenting quite a bit. And... Honestly, Travis Bickle was not very much, was not really a likable character. The narrative was really askewed, and I, I left it thinking, I don't think I disliked it. I know I liked it, but I couldn't really figure out how much I liked it. But then after sitting with it for a while and doing research into it and reading about it, like my rating for it went up a whole star. Like I, it went from being a four star film to a five star film just because I could not shake the movie yeah. by what it was saying. And then, like, if you think about the time uh, in 1976 when the film came out, this type of character wasn't nearly as common. This kind of old west hero who's not a hero at all who kind of lucks into being a hero, who's a really fucking psychotic person and needs help, um, but all because of perception is viewed as a good person. Yeah. So the, I think I really love the film. I just needed time to sit with it. And I think the more times I watch it, I think the more it's going to, um, I'm going to, I honestly think I'm going to get to the point of seeing it as, an, as, as, a, as a masterpiece. I just, yeah. I need more time with it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, um, you, you mentioned the finding themselves as like an unlikely hero despite their actions. Um, one of the things that I almost, really grabbed, stuck my, with I, I me, almost grabbed my microphone to drink. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes like audio. Um, ah, static. Where a lot of Paul Schrader's script came from his own uh, depression. Yeah. And mental health issues that he was suffering from at the time. But then it was also, um, like, cauterized by this um, thing that was going on. Um, and, and so I want to read the, a paragraph. This is um, an article on looper.com. Um, so if Travis survives the end of Taxi Driver and really does become a hero, then what's the movie all about? Well, in a commentary track, screenwriter Paul Schrader 
talked about how he was inspired by real-life would-be assassin Sarah Jane Moore, a woman who took a shot at Gerald Ford, which mm. makes perfect sense. You can see yes, yes. that in the I, film. I, I heard uh, Schrader talk about that on a commentary track, and I was like, yeah, that tracks. That tracks. Yep. <laughs> After her failed murder attempt, Moore's face wound up on the cover of Newsweek, and that baffled Schrader. Why was the magazine treating her like a movie star? Confused and frustrated, Schrader decided to work that into the script and have the media turn Travis Bickle into a hero. Um, end quote. So, and what makes that so interesting is that I think the movie is not making him a hero. I don't think he is this this hero i think the end of the movie is that he is decidedly not a hero but the media is portraying him as one and yeah. and jody foster's character's parents um treating him as one they they are either refusing to to see or 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 what um what led up to all of those events all of the darkness and the I, I I hate to say the word evil because I I don't believe in good and evil per se, but all of the uh, all of the really serious issues um, that led up to that final confrontation. No, and actually I'm going to expand upon that because in one of the commentaries I was listening to, um, because like one thing I, when I was watching the film, like I was I was a little lost on his motivation at first, and I, I don't necessarily feel that's a bad way. Bad way. I don't think it's a bad thing for the audience to not fully get someone's uh, actions because I feel like there's, you should dig into it and figure it out yourself. And I remember thinking, it was like, you know, I, I had thoughts of why he was trying to kill Palantine, uh, but I couldn't quite put it in the words. But uh, Paul Schrader actually himself said. The woman he, being, he being Travis, desires, he cannot have. And the one he can have, he does not desire. Meaning he desires Betsy, can't, uh, but she doesn't want him. And he could probably very easily have, um, I don't remember the girl's name. Um, yeah, uh, Jodie Foster's Jody character. Foster's character, but he does not desire her. So he tries to kill the father figure of one. And after he fails to kill her father figure, he kills the father figure of the other. One being a pimp. Iris. And, Her yep. name is Iris. One being a pimp and one being a politician doesn't matter to him. They're the same to him. The biggest irony of his life is that he's viewed as a hero because he got lucky and killed the right one. Right. And that's like, yeah. And that just adds so much to that ending because it's like he was he didn't go to kill uh, Sport or Matthew, whatever his name is, uh, as a way to be like this is the right thing to do. To an extent, I feel like he knew it was wrong. Uh, but he wasn't trying to go out there necessarily be a hero because right before that he tried killing Palantine and it didn't work. He just got lucky and killed the right one. Yeah, well, and and his his fixation on Betty and Iris are Betsy. both very Bet, Betsy. Sorry, uh, Betsy and Iris are different. Mm-hmm. Um, he he covets Betsy because he sees her as this clean pure angel who somehow exists in but rises above no one the filth of the city touch her or however he fucking <laughs> says it um where iris could be that but she needs saving mm-hmm. you don't have to make it mister god damn it don't you want to get out of here can you understand why i came here I think I understand. Uh, 
I tried to get into your cab one night, and now you want to come and take me away. Is that it? Yeah, but don't, don't you want to go? I can leave any time I want to. Well, then what about that one night? Look, I was stoned. That's why they stopped me. Because when I'm not stoned, I have no place else to go. So they just, uh, protect me from myself. Well, I don't know. And and he tries to save her just by pulling her out of it and like let me take you away from here. Why are you doing this? Don't yeah. you have somewhere else to be? Um, I've heard and he sounds like a like a dad or a lame uncle when he's talking to her and it's like no you're you're don't know what's going on, man. When he's talking to, to little Iris, I forget the words he uses, but it's so corny. Um, and that is you can you can feel when like it's very clear when he decides to become this uh, organized or designized or whatever. Uh, we had to look person. up that joke because we didn't get it. <laughs> I, I think my well, favorite. My favorite. Corny. Did you catch when he had the yeah, sign? Yeah, I got the sign. I just got like, the we, sign. Me and Amanda were like, I, we, we get it, but why is it funny? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think you both get it, and it's also not funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my favorite, like, dumb, like, dad De Niro line is like, hey, man, I'm hip. He's in Carvey Cotez, like, you don't look hip. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> like I just like and and it's the and these subtleties that I I think are what's what's drawing me to the film the fact that you know uh, in some scenes Travis Bickle is very closed off and isolated and one can argue it's self imposed isolation yeah, yeah. um um and uh, actually uh, uh, Schrader describes a taxi cab as being a coffin floating around the city right um. um but, it, it, you know, he's very closed off when he's talking to some of the other cabbies. And, you know, they ask him a question. There's a long beat before he talks. And uh, actually, even the way that they frame him in a lot of scenes shows him detached from everyone else. He's always yep. a little bit farther apart. Uh, but then there's other or scenes. There, or there's glass between mm -hmm. him and who he's observing. Or he's only looking at them through the mirrors. There's, like, there's both space, but there's more often than not also a physical barrier between him and everyone else. Mm-hmm. But, like, what interests me as well is how... So, it's like th there's this self-imposed isolation, but he can very easily be a charming, interesting person. And, well, not necessarily interesting. I feel like that's where he struggles. Um, but he's, he can come off as a charming person. Like, some of his conversations with Betsy, or even when he was, like, uh, trying to get information on the uh, from the security guard of Palantine, that guy was very clearly not trusting him. But, like, <laughs> he's smiling, he's having a good time and everything. Um, well, he, he has the magnetism that is often described by sociopaths or, or cult leaders. Like, he can turn it on, and and just by... She, he, he isn't smooth in those conversations. He's not particularly likable, but he has this force mm -hmm. to him that isn't... He, he doesn't, in most of the film, apply it aggressively but he has this force that makes it hard for you to not give him your attention yeah, when he turns it on 
and I had a thought. I had a thought. You know, um, so they 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 talk about the fact that Bickle, which Travis Bickle is a gross name. <laughs> I I love that name. It, it's like, so gross usually, in the best way possible. Like a lot of characters. And how many times have we been discussing a film and we're like, oh, what's what's the character's name? What's yeah. the, like you can't not remember Travis Bickle. Yeah, but like so they they talk about the fact that um, you know he was in Vietnam that he was he had an honorable discharge he, he spent his time he, there he only references it once in that opening scene mm-hmm. um, and there's speculation that maybe he's making this up because he does lie about his past and that's true um, to people like when he's ta- writing to his mother and father that's um, imp- so there is that speculation but uh it, it you know taking it at face value yeah and that's um, a great point very unreliable narrator tactic but let's say for yeah. let's, let's say for the sake of argument in my point that he yeah. he did he, because i feel like enough things track that make you believe that like the, it, the, the patchy certainly the patch he has on his jacket is a very yeah. like um, it, it, it's it seems very much like an infantry patch of some sort. The fact right. that he is so confident with the weapon, um, but so what's to say for the sake of argument that he was? Um, and what's interesting about that to me is when you're in the army, you are um, you're not you're not an individual as so much as you are part of a unit. You are part of something bigger. And very much, in a lot of ways, you are a follower because you're you're told what you have to do. And when Travis Bickle comes back to the real world, it very much feels like he's still in that mindset of following, where he he wants to be a part of something but yep. isn't. So yes. he doesn't know his so, place. Like when when he has his conversation, early conversations with Betsy, and she's like, "What do, what's your favorite things about Palantine?" He's like, oh, I, don't, "I don't really follow politics," and that you know that's not a problem. But like he's he's decided because Betsy likes Palantine, I'm also going to like him, and so much so that when he meets Palantine in the in the cab, he's like, "Oh, I tell all my friends about you that you're going to clean up the city. Yeah. You think you're great. I think you're, I, I put your stickers everywhere. They want me to put it in the cab, but what do they know?" And then he's like, "Well, what what's something you think needs to be changed?" He's like, oh, "I don't follow politics." You know, it's like he 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 wants to like this person because people are telling him to, yeah. um, and then even with his, on his date with Betsy, and like he, he's very much in all those scenes, very much like in my perspective, a puppy dog looking for affection. Where you know she's like, oh, it's it's a Chris Christopherson song, and he's like, do you like him? Is like I don't really follow music, but I'd like to. It's like, <laughs> right. you know, tell me about music. Like who and, says that? Yeah. <laughs> What's um, this music thing I keep hearing about? But then when Betsy, I don't want to say breaks his heart because I don't think he actually loved her. I think he loved the idea of her. Um, when Betsy rejects him, he then stops becoming a follower and becomes a leader. And we find out why, why he should fucking, why he was probably better as a follower because when he takes things into his own hands and decides to be his own person, things get fucking insane. <laughs> so that was a long yeah, ramble, well. but like um, that was another thing because like I've talked to friends of mine who have been in war zones, who have been part of the army, and a lot of times they they could say it could be hard to readjust. And I'm right, you know, I, I don't know. I've not been in that situation. I'm just quoting what people have told me. It could be hard to readjust because. Um, I've heard it's it, it could be very similar to readjusting coming from prison because you are in a very strict way of living. You have your things you do at a certain time of the day. You have you have you have structure, and then you don't. 
and now, then you have to figure it out for yourself. And if you can't make your own structure, what do you do? Right. Um, so I'm going to in, kind of plain devil's advocate. I I have the counter. By the way, to, I do like your thought process that he wasn't actually in the army, but the I, and yeah. So I'll I'll go into that theory, but something that I think is really good about this film is both of both what you laid out and what I'm about to lay out, I think are equally possible. Okay. Um, because the him being in the army, like this tracks as like, yeah, a PTSD or at the time, I think it was termed shell shock mm-hmm. kind of like coming out of, of that structure, seeing things and experiencing things that are, that are highly traumatic, then getting spat back out into the real world. And it's like, okay, figure it out. Yeah, uh, and I think that that perfectly tracks. And so, but the counter narrative is, let's say he was not he he did not serve again. It's only mentioned once by him. I thought it was mentioned another time too, but maybe I'm crazy. I, I don't believe so. I I believe it was only said in that beginning thing. We know that he lies about his past when he writes to his mother and father and says he's happily in this great relationship with Betsy and mm-hmm. things are going great, and mom and dad, uh, and can't wait to see And him. he also says to someone else, it might have been in that letter, but I know he says it to a person as well, that he's part, he's in the government or something. Yes, it was in that letter that he's working for the government. I find, Even though he, he does have an army-like fatigue jacket with... But there's only a single patch on it, mm-hmm. which I find very interesting because I would imagine that if that was your army uh, shirt, you would have it at the very least your name patch on it. It's on the back. Is it? It's printed very faintly on the back. It okay. says T. Bickle. Oh, okay. Well, that would be an argument for I. I didn't notice that. Um, but to, but to continue with the narrative, especially, like, despite the evidence to the, that contrary. Ah, I'm right. Um, <laughs> you win. Podcast <laughs> over. Um, I think, oh, uh, the other point was his familiarity with guns and his comfort with guns. And I would challenge that a little bit to say that was he? He, when the other cabbies talked about it, he's like, oh, I don't really, it's the same kind of answer he gives that like, oh, I don't really, I don't really, uh, use I don't need guns. a piece I don't, really, I don't like need, that. yeah. And he kind of, he says a couple of lines and then he, when he's finally ready, he goes to that person and the, the, um, gun sales person, the shady as fuck sales guy is talking about the guns and he's just like, yeah, okay. I'll take them all. It reminds you of that Terminator scene, actually. To- yeah. The 45 long slide with laser siding. It's a brand new. We just got them in. That's a good gun. You just touch the trigger, the beam comes on, and you put the red dot where you want the bullet to go. You can't miss. Anything else? Phased plasma rifle in the 40 watt range. Hey, just what you see, pal. The Uzi 9 millimeter. You know your weapons, buddy. Any one of these is ideal for home defense. So, uh, which will it be? How much for everything? Uh, all together. Well, only a jackass would carry that cannon in the streets like that. Here. Here's a beautiful handmade holster I had made in Mexico. $40. Thanks. 
350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. You take this, and oh, wait here, I'll walk down with you. Um, and then, and then you see a montage of him training with the guns. It, and it's not like he's just like instantly, go, he, he goes to the gun, like you can see him getting familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And now, point. again, I, I don't think that that's evidence that that other narrative is wrong, but I think there's evidence that also equally supports that he's not really familiar with guns. That's an interesting point, actually. Um, and I And I like this idea of the unreliable narrator and kind of viewing the world through big Travis's eyes, which is why I think the film is kind of disjointed in ways um, and why there are things that are missing. Like, I've never quite been able to figure out what his inciting incident was for getting a gun. I do find it really interesting that the scene with Martin Scorsese in the back of the cab where he's talking about <laughs> wanting to kill his wife, um, he talks about a specific gun, and then when Travis Bickle wants to get a gun, that's the gun he quotes that he wants. Right. Um, but um, I, I never saw an incident that made him feel like he needs to get it. And, and I think that's what's truly scary about it. It's not like he was potentially robbed or something happened to him he just something said i need to get a gun the and this goes to my my biggest takeaway from the film we know so little about travis before that opening sequence with him walking into the taxi stand we have a couple of lines that we've already established are not things that we can rely on whether they're true or not but even knowing it like all we know is like a single sentence bullet line fact. Mm-hmm. We don't know how he felt about it. Whenever he's asked anything about himself, his reaction is, I don't know much about that. Mm-hmm. Politics. Oh, I don't really follow politics. Music. Oh, I'd like to get into music. How about movies? Oh, I don't really know much about movies. I'm sorry I took you to this one. I don't know much about it. Like that's always his reaction. He has little to no personality. Yeah. Um, He's a child. Beyond that, whenever he's, with the exception of when he is with Betsy or Iris, Travis Bickle is typically sitting there saying next to nothing while everybody around him talks at him. Mm -hmm. Right? So Travis Bickle feels like this empty vessel. Yeah. That this dirty, filthy, corrupt city reflects onto him what i what i find truly interesting about him is like i just said he, he in a lot of ways he reminds me of a child where he doesn't really have an opinion of his own his diet consists of nothing but junk food and candy <laughs> and things like that he pours alcohol on his breakfast and um but then like he is a walking contradiction um where he talks about the scum of the city and all these perverts and other things in but when he has nothing else to do, he goes to porn theaters. He right. has a terrible diet. He he hangs around with seedy people. He is the person that he, he hates. He just can't view it that way. Because I can't I can't clearly be one of these people. I'm not one of them. But yeah. he is. In, in that beginning sequence when he's talking about all of the, the horrible people in the city and needs a good rain to just wash it all away, he keeps saying, but that doesn't matter to me. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, 
but it really sounds like it does matter to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's Edgar Allan Poe narrator in uh, a telltale heart saying look at how not crazy i am mm-hmm. as i'm sitting in the dark waiting to murder this person like look at how sane i am yeah um but be- because travis is you know if you buy that explanation that he is just a reflection of the city that he that he has no real personality or or drive or desire no mission that it's that's it's the all of the problems of the city that are then poured into this person that it's the city doing this uh now that excuses that that seems to might seem like i'm saying that it's not travis's fault that's not what i'm saying um but from a uh Nar- uh, not even narrative, a thematic perspective, like he is a representation of the city because he has no strong personality of his own, mm-hmm. no motive of his own. And I want to talk a little bit, since we're talking about the perspective of Travis and how he is kind of a natural liar, um, the ending scene with Betsy in the cab. Oh yeah, so weird. It was, and I'm. There's there's thoughts for it and there's thoughts against it. I personally feel like that well, he made that up. It was in his own yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. If you think about it, we do you ever other than when he's driving away and we see Betsy walking away, we never see her in the cab. We only see right, her. In, you see in her only, in the mirror, in, in the rear view mirror, and even when she walks away, we never see her face. We just see a blonde and white walking away. Okay. Um, and then, like you know, he has this, you know, of co- you know, of course, somehow the 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 woman he's been desiring gets into his cab and saw what he did and is, you know, now interested again. And yeah. him thinking he, I guess, in some ways, is the bigger man turns her down. And no, right, it's it's, it's, it's it, interesting. It could absolutely be somebody else, and he's pretending that it's her. It mm-hmm. could equally be that she did get into his cab, but said nothing, mm-hmm. and he was imagining this conversation that he would like to have with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, it's also possible that that all did happen. And you start to get, it, like, it gives you this false sense that, oh, he got all that out of his system, he's better now, except... For that tiny little moment after she gets out of the cab, where he has this moment where he like there's this quick flash and he turns his head, this like little like like things are still not right in his yeah, head. There's something still manic in there trying to yeah. get itself out. Um, yeah, and it's like these all these these contradictions are I think are like what made and what kept me a little bit on arm's length as I was watching it. But I think are what keep appealing to me is in terms of being so interesting. And I had mentioned in my intro that I think there's a lot of truly artful and kind of experimental choices in this film. And I, I remember hearing Scorsese talk about in his films that he tries to always have the camera motivated in some way to, to what the story demands. Yeah. And I went into that thinking about this, and then like there's sometimes where like the cinematography really pushed me away because I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why something was happening. 
But then after like even just hearing some explanations on some things, I realized that that's not the case. Scorsese does have thought that he does have a reason for a lot of what he's doing. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah. the biggest the, one. I- I think the answers to most of these questions are in the framing of the camera and the cinematography, yeah. which is interesting. Um, like one of the ones that like really confused me, and it, it but it stuck with me. So this my whole point is, just because I don't get something doesn't mean it's bad. And it, and I know some people are the opposite way. If they don't get something, it frustrates them, and they say fuck <laughs> it. For me, it's like if I don't get something, it makes it intrigues me more, and I want to keep digging away at it there's always exceptions yeah. but there True. was a, a shot in the film where travis is on the phone with betsy and was kind of apologizing for their previous date where he took her to a porn theater which right. by the way that theater was really nice on the outside so i wouldn't have assumed that was a porn theater <laughs> uh, it, was like, very, it was very nice yeah though i would never buy popcorn in one of those theaters <laughs> no no um but um so he's on the phone with her and she's kind of talking like you get the idea that she doesn't want anything to do with him again and the camera uh on a dolly track moves from him and just looks down the hallway and i'm sitting there watching it thinking i'm expecting something to happen or him to come into the frame and walk away and it just holds on that frame and then cuts and but you still hear the conversation and i'm like why that's such a weird choice why would you do that but at the same time it's a very deliberate move so there's a reason for why it's done and that was throwing me for the longest time and then i remember uh when i was looking when i was just looking things up for taxi driver i found an article that says you know um scorsese's uh uh, scorsese's uh most important uh, shot in taxi driver is not one that you'd expect or some shit like that and i'm like (laughs) Is it that fucking hallway shot? I click on it, and he, it is. He sure said that, that he thinks that's the most important shot of the movie, and I was like, "Why?" And I read his his reasoning, and it makes sense because he said um, he 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 moves down the hallway to to disconnect you from Travis because he said he he, he didn't want the audience to see the heartbreak. Okay, he didn't want to see him show any real emotion about about this, and they wanted him to the on the audience to still feel detached and almost like floating and it's interesting when the film will very much be through the perspective of travis but then it'll take moments like that and it's almost like the camera is its own person and it's just like let's detach ourselves from this entire situation for a little bit uh two other cinematography examples i'll give and these kind of go back to the the alternate theory i gave about um Travis and and the gun collecting. Um, So I I would propose that most people who left the service would have a gun and not need to go buy one. Yeah, I guess I don't really know for sure. um, And that is an assumption on my part. In, In the hotel room where he's buying the guns... He's, you know, he hands him one, and he's like, oh, check this out. The very first thing he does is he goes to the window. That, you know, usually if you're, like, t- trying to make a purchase, even a gun, you're looking at it, you know, is this in good shape? Is this, you know, mm-hmm. the weight that I want? Instead, he goes to the window, points the gun out, and starts following cars and people. And, and what I find so interesting about that shot as well is... If you rewatch that scene, Travis himself is on like a dolly. It's on like a moving box or something. It's not his arm tracking around. His his arm stays in the exact same position, and it's just almost floating. Yeah, yeah. Makes it very sinister. 
Yeah. Almost uh, like he's, other- I'm going to overthink this, almost like he's like an angel of death type thing. Sure. Yeah, I mean, especially given that he's up above everybody else, which is how he sees himself, above the scum of the city, mm-hmm. um, and and able to judge everybody else and judge them to the point of uh, whether or not they should live or die. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other shot that I'm thinking of is, and I'm not going to use <laughs> for obvious reasons the language that they use in the film. Um, he says in the beginning, like, a lot of cabbies won't pick up black people, but I will. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, he's, and, and through most of the film, there doesn't seem to be this strong racial element outside of the language that he's using in the beginning until after he's gotten his guns. Um, and he has that encounter with uh, where he shoots the, the robber. Yeah. In the convenience store. And immediately after that scene resolves, he is in his apartment watching American Bandstand, and he's pointing his gun mm-hmm. at the black guy dancing. So it's like, up until that point, he didn't have a strong opinion, but as soon as he saw a black man robbing a convenience store, now now it, it, it was like racism just clicked in. Yeah. It's like almost um, like it was hiding there, but, and I, and one thing I appreciate too is so you know I, we, we've talked before where in a movie you can have racist characters without necessarily meaning the filmmakers are racist or anything like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I find it really interesting that um, Peter Boyle's character Wizard, um, which it was great to see him. Yeah, Amanda <laughs> like, said, "Is like has he ever had hair? No." <laughs> Nope. Um, nope. Uh, but like, there's that scene when they're all at the like the cafeteria, the delicatessen or whatever, and they're all talking about like uh, they they get on the co- topic of like same sex marriage or, or gay people or so, whatever. Yeah. Yep. And Peter then, Boyle starts telling yeah. this anecdote, and then he says that it's like uh, one of the characters says it's like, well, it, it, gay marriage is legal in California, and he long pause and goes. Well, they've always been more progressive, or they've always been more uh, forward-thinking than the rest of. Or just he said it in a way that made it sound didn't sound like he's opposed to it in any way. Yeah, it's just like yeah, they got there before us. That's smart of them. I don't know. I just <laughs> I found that that line very amusing because I think it was it was a great telling point for character because like it all comes down to delivery. Because if he would have delivered it differently, it was like oh, they always are more progressive than us. It could have been a really negative, yeah. but like the way he said it, it's like mm-hmm. oh. That's interesting. Good for them. Like just the way he said it, I just thought it was so telling for his character. Um, and then just the scene between him and Travis when they're talking outside, and you know, and going back to the idea of this unreliable narrator thing, like they almost feel like they're having two different conversations. So it begs yeah. the question of like who's actually saying what. And I don't know. I, I found. Uh, I want to go back to that scene and kind of rewatch it, and because right. the the advice that that uh, wizard was giving Travis was so different than what Travis was talking about. It almost makes me wonder, in a sense, did Travis actually say what he was, what he was saying, or is he what's going on? Well, I know you and I ain't talked too much, you know. Yeah. But I figure you've been around a lot, so you could uh, shoot. That's why they call me the wizard. I got. It's just that I gotta, I gotta. Things got you down? Yeah. yeah okay. That happens to the best of me. Yeah, I got me real down, real down. 
just want to go out and, and, you know, like, really, really, really do something. Taxi life, you mean? Yeah, well, nah, it's, I don't know. I just want to go out. I really, you know, I really want to, I got some bad ideas in my head. I just, oh, look, look at it this way, you know, uh, the man, the man takes a job, you know? And that job, I mean, like that, you know, that becomes what he is. You know, like, uh, you, know, you do a thing and that's what you want. I mean, like, I've been a, I've been a cabbie for 17 years, you know, 10 years at night. I still don't own my own cab. You know why? Because I don't want to. I must be what I, what I want, you know, to be on the night shift, driving somebody else's cab. Understand? That's another one of those scenes where Travis has maybe four lines in that entire scene, and it's Wizard kind of trying to fill that emptiness. He's like he knows that Travis is looking to him to say something, mm-hmm. but he's not. But Travis isn't giving him enough information to really know what to say. And he's like, "Well, I'm the wise old sage of this group. I guess it's my job to try and make him feel a little bit better." Yeah, and and he just starts like kind of spilling all of this like it's okay that's the way it all you know we all are you'll be fine kind of thing yeah. while he just sits there, I do f- get the sense that Travis is genuinely trying to reach out for help for connection. He, he's it's like the moment that he is trying to check himself, and it seems to be when Wizard fails to deliver. He's like, I'm having a lot of really bad thoughts, and and Wizard fails to actually like Help. understand anything about what he's going through. That's when he's like, okay, now I'm, I gotta get my brain organized. Like, clearly, I'm not gonna get that that somebody else isn't gonna pull me back. So now I'm gonna go for it. But what I find interesting about that scene, and maybe I, I, I like, so I want to go back and re-listen to it. So this is just my memory of the scene. I, I right. remember Wizard was talking about um, how your profession is kind of how you're known. Right. You that's know, who if, you become. Yeah. Like you Ta- know, if, and, and that, tr- like, hence the title, taxi driver. Yeah. It's like you know. It's like. Um, you know, you build a great bridge, you're a bridge builder. You build a great dam, you're a dam builder. Um, and like I said, he's known as a taxi driver because that's his profession. But then, um, like, I don't know if this is if this is an actual expression, but I remember hearing it one time in a movie, and I'm just going to quote it. And they, they said, you know, like, they pretty much said one negative thing can change everything. Like, it, the, the, their quote was, you build a great bridge, you are a bit bridge builder. You you build a great building, you're a, an architect. You fuck one chicken. <laughs> I don't remember what movie that's from, but it, it's thinking, think about it that way. It's like, you know, Travis is driving a taxi cab. He's a taxi driver. Right. But had he killed Palantine, he'd be a, a vigilante. Yeah. Because he killed the the pimp, he's a hero. Right. And it kind of outweigh and even everything in all of the headlines was, t- you know, taxi driver did this, taxi driver did that, taxi driver right. did this, taxi driver hero. 
And so, and that goes to support that whole idea of Travis being this blank slate, um, where he's not Travis. He's not a person. He is this like faceless taxi driver in the crowd of New York. He is this thing that that the city is just like splattered onto because as a taxi driver you're exposed to all of those things mm-hmm. well, and that shapes who you are yeah one of the last things well maybe not last but one one other thing i wanted to talk about as well was so walter hill filmmaker walter hill who did films like uh, the driver hard times the warriors um he one time said that um he's got a very deep bellowing voice he once he one time said that every movie i've ever made is a western even if they're not (laughs) westerns and i think about that line whenever i watch any movie now with filmmakers i that i feel are inspired by westerns and i can't not see the western influence in taxi driver okay not even the fact that you know sport calls him a cowboy and all that but like if you just look at his his outfit half the time he's wearing cowboy boots jeans is usually a a (laughs) Uh, a flat a plaid shirt of some sort um but then just the way that he holds himself where he's you know like this lone western hero against the world and um you know his his taxi cab is kind of like his his, his horse um and he's gonna go clean up the town essentially and right and then there's just it seems like to be a lot of native american imagery as well like when he shaves his head to be like yep. the mohawk or even the way that 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 sport the pimp is dressed and is holding himself and <laughs> i just keep seeing these western influences and then i haven't seen the movie which would be a pretty good episode for this season uh chris as you said the movie's highly influenced off of john wayne's the searchers because yes. how yep. the searcher uh, how john wayne's character in that movie was not necessarily a heroic type but he was a he kind of a bad person brought in to do a heroic job essentially right yeah so i've been thinking a lot about that as well and um how that kind of plays into it uh yeah absolutely um this will kind of break the flow but it's i'm starting to get to that point where i'm like okay what what of my notes haven't we uh hit on um and I'll go back to something we were talking about before where he saw Betsy as this pure white angel. Yeah, which, by the way, Sybil um, Shepard, who played Betsy, was phenomenal in this movie. She was great. Though I found her conversations with uh, that uh, like fro-headed guy that Albert she Brooks. worked with very... That, oh, yeah, that's right. It, it was very... Their, their conversation pacing, and I think it was intentional, was very awkward. Yeah. It was very strange. Like, you could feel these kind of like these bits they were doing, mm-hmm. but they didn't quite fit together right. But anyway, so he clearly sees her as this this pure thing above it all. So then we get to um, the uh, Jodie Foster's character. Yeah, Iris. And uh, uh, but we don't know that her name is Iris right off the bat, no, right? No. Yeah. He, he has to draw that out of her. Yes. Uh, and a white iris, the flower represents, like, it's what that flower represents is purity. Mm-hmm. If you look up, you know, the different meaning, meanings of things. So the fact that this hidden name of hers means purity 
is uh, um, reflects Travis's opinion of her that that she is or could be that same purity as Betsy, but she needs saving. She needs to tear away that other name that she has as a prostitute in order to um, like be what she's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, masculinity in the film. Okay. Um, and Travis's... The really perce- healthy version of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Travis's perception of it. And I was watching a video essay that was actually talking about this. Um, and about how um, they theorized that the, one of the reasons that Travis became so so violent and tried to almost become this protector guardian type thing is because his perception of masculinity is that of the protector because with betsy you know she is sided with palantine and views palantine as a person that's going to save the city and it's going to make everything better and she 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 views him and she does pretty much anything for him even when she says in the line it's like we're going to need you to campaign morning day and night and spend all your time doing this and travis drive a cab at night i can't do that and she's (laughs) dedicated her life and her entire being to palantine um and then um and then when um he's watching her from afar she sends albert brooks's character out there to spook him off she she relies on a man to help her um and then when he's following um uh iris the second time he sees her she gets spooked and runs off with a guy just so she's with someone so his perception of women is that um, you know, a stronger man is what he has to be to to get these women to to respect him, and I think he kind of takes it to a really he obviously takes it to a really dark, sure side with it, and is building himself to be this this manly protector who, you know, I think is hi- is definitely hiding behind a gun. Like his whole "you talking to me" speech is very much it's like, you know. Oh, you're going to cross words with me? Well, fuck off. I got a gun. Right. He's hiding. He's hiding behind a firearm because he's 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 not masculine enough to defend himself without it. But it makes him feel like he could now be the protector that gives him value. Yeah, and like, well, just look at the way like he arms himself up. He's got a fucking knife on his boot. He's got a hiding gun in his in his <laughs> arm. He's got that fucking giant cannon on his ribs, which looks like yeah. so heavy. <laughs> and he's got multiple guns all on him, just in case. Right. You know, it's it's that um, that good guy with a gun type situation. <laughs> I, the same phrase popped into my where, head several you know, times, especially because like. Especially because, like you know, the the first time he uses it against that 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 robbery, just gives him more ammunition for his his own dark thoughts of like, well, yep. my gun saved that guy, so my gun can save everyone. Yeah, Travis Bickle, yeah, good no, guy it's... with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the message to take away from this film. We nailed it. We figured yep. it out. <laughs> um. I'm doing pretty good for having no notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing that I found interesting that I'm sure has more meaning, but I wasn't able to derive anything out of it, was all of the shots framed up 
when uh, at that end rally with Palantine when Travis goes to try to assassinate him. Not very every successfully. Time, uh, yeah. Every time they showed Palantine, it was framed up with that statue that was behind him. And sometimes yeah. it would be from behind the statue, sometimes it would be from in front with the statue behind him. But yeah. every time Palantine's arms were like mirroring that statue. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really interesting framing. And actually another thing I wanted to talk about because um I, we've talked a lot about Travis's perception of the world and kind of viewing the world through his eyes. And I've 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 not been able to find anything on it, but I'm wondering if it was a mistake or if it was an intentional choice where Travis's hair changes in, from scene to scene in some of these in some of the scenes, especially like once he starts becoming more confident in himself and with the gun and everything. You know, he's got the shaggier hair at the beginning and then obviously he goes to a mohawk, but there's a couple in between scenes where his hair is sh- it, it, is cut down short like it would yeah. probably would be in the military and then it would cut to another scene where it was longer. And I've always been curious if that was intentional if they moved scenes around or what okay. happened there i've not i've not been able to quite figure it out and i wanted to address it to see if you had a thought sure i mean certainly i would i would view him getting his hair cut cleaner as part of his mission to organize himself he uses that word i have to organize my thoughts and and get my body like turn myself into this flawlessly working machine and so i think him getting his haircut is part of that and a reflection of that now um it then jumping to a longer haircut or a shadier haircut i did not notice but if i were to just like throw something into the wind and see if it sticks is it it represents the um the the chaos in his mind and the back and forth a lack of organization despite his belief that he is becoming organized um just like in that end scene where he sees this again we we discussed whether it's in his mind or it actually happened he has this somewhat normal conversation with betsy and then there's that like kind of like reaction he has afterwards mm-hmm. um showing that his ideals are very different than what is happening yeah to and, him and from him and around him and I, I love the way that like his uh i talked earlier about like how travis is the type of person that he rebels against and uh and how his ideals are slowly trickling through especially throughout his, his chaotic diary entries yeah and uh there's one that stuck out to me and i want to read it out loud to you and i want to talk okay. about why it stuck out to me and uh, and real quick i'll throw out there like how much did that feel like an assassin's manifesto yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um so one of his one of his it was it was their first, betsy and travis's first date and he says may 26th four o'clock p.m i took betsy to charles coffee shop on columbus circle i had black coffee and apple pie with a slice of melted yellow cheese gross he didn't write that. He, I, he did not write gross. That's a uh, <laughs> uh, I think I love the way I think that was a good selection. But then he writes, Betsy had coffee and a fruit salad dish. She could have had anything she wanted. And it's it's almost like he's 
that line I didn't it didn't stick out to me as much when I heard it. It did a little bit, but after rereading it now, it just really st- the reason it didn't stick out is because I just kept making fun of. I think that was a good selection. <laughs> it, but like, yeah, well, but the reason it sticks out to me now is it almost feels like this slight disrespect. Like he doesn't fully like not disrespect necessarily, but like. You know, he views the world as this gluttonous thing where he goes to see a porno movie, he gets popcorn, he gets two or three different types of candy and all his other stuff. And when he goes to the pie shop, he gets, you know, fucking pie with melted yellow cheese on top. And I know that's a thing that people do, but it comes off very gluttonous. And here she is. And this is coming from a guy who's probably way overweight. Uh, and she's, you know, just eating fruit salad. And he almost kind of just like, she could have had anything. And she gets that. Why? Like, it just, it's, it's, it's very terrible telling to the way that he views the world yeah i and this can travis bickle is written in a way that everything he says can be interpreted multiple ways Mm -hmm. it's like it's intentionally vague and Mm -hmm. even his delivery doesn't give much away it's very kind of monotone um he contradicts himself constantly because i interpreted that entry very differently um, but again, I I don't think it's more right than yours. I think that that is a absolutely valid interpretation of of that. Um, you're wrong, Nick. You're wrong. You suck. Um, the when he first he he describes what he ordered and says that was a good choice. I interpreted that as I did a good job fitting in. That goes back to that kind of sociopath like. Oh, that's an interesting perspective on that. Um, like. Like, he, his motive there isn't to get to know Iris, or sorry, Betsy, or or to learn more about her in the ways that most of us would on a first date. It's, I'm trying to make sure I, I am a normal human being. Um, that was a good, I made the right choice because it didn't have any negative repercussions. It, it, I successfully fit it. Yeah, considering one of his meals was seriously bread with alcohol poured over it that he ate out of a right. cereal bowl. <laughs> Um, <laughs> not as gross as cheese on apple pie gross um, and then when he says uh, she ordered uh, she ordered a fruit salad she could have ordered anything she wanted like again it's like monotone you can't you're, it's totally open to interpretation what mm-hmm. I what, how I chose to interpret it was this again this the way he um, puts her up on this pedestal of, you know, she could have had anything on the menu, but she chose this. And for mm. some reason, uh, for some reason, that makes her amazing. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. That's, 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 that's a really so interesting her. perspective of it. Fruit salad, that is so her. Oh, Betsy. <laughs> that's an interesting... So, but, but again, like it, it just goes to show how much you know. I, I've said multiple times how the city reflected on Travis, like. But in this film analysis, and I think the reason why it's easy to get drawn into this movie is you can project yourself onto Travis, despite what you know happens. Mm-hmm. He is this blank slate, and so anything he says, you're able to go. You know what I think he means by that. You know, it and it becomes this reflection of ourselves in a very mm-hmm. dark character, which is scary. Yeah, <laughs> I am not like Travis Bickle. 
I don't, I don't put I cheese on my pie. No. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> um, that's in. Oh, that's interesting. And that's. I think that's the reason I, I'm like this movie is gonna keep appealing to me, is because there is no right answer because even to the right. point where yep. paul schrader had his thought process when he went into it well his ideas and why he wrote it and then scorsese went in with a different thought process not necessarily opposing but he viewed things a little bit differently and in the commentary i was listening to uh with paul schrader and scorsese you know schrader admits sometimes when like oh scorsese viewed it this way i didn't see it that way and i think that was a really good idea like he even talks about like when Scorsese, uh, the fact that Scorsese did cast Albert Brooks, a comedian, to play that role, he's like, I never viewed the role as funny. I never, <laughs> right. wrote, I never thought of there being any humor in this movie, but he 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 brought that in. I thought that was a smart choice, and yeah. you know they they're attacking it from two different places. Right, and it wasn't hearty har har kind of humor, but it, in the same it's way that levity. you would have some some bits with your coworkers, it felt very normal in a film that. You're spending most of the time in the in Travis Bickle's perspective, like that normalcy felt stark. Yeah, and like I I I think Scorsese was a great choice for this film because um, apparently, from what I from what Scorsese had said, that when Schrader had showed this, he had showed the script to a couple filmmaking friends of his, and one of them was Brian De Palma, a director that I absolutely adore. And De Palma loved the script, but didn't think he was right for it, and showed okay. it to Martin Scorsese. And I think the reason that works is because De Palma's got <clears throat> he's got his own very unique style, and it's very it's a very in a lot of ways a very classical Hollywood style where lots of uh, lots of dolly shots, lots of crane shots, lots of very intentional movements, um, and Scorsese at that time was a really running gun kind of almost like Italian neo-realist filmmaker and I think his style is a lot grittier and I think works for for the film and I don't and I don't know if in a different hands of Taxi Driver the film would have worked as well I feel like it was a combination of Schrader's script and Scorsese's vision that really brought it to life and then Bernard Herrmann's fantastic jazz score yeah, like, I, would, I agree. Who, who would have thought this, the guy who composed the music for Psycho and Twilight Zone would make that score? <laughs> well, and they they use that theme so well in so many different ways. That in the first half of the film, it's like his driving around in his taxi theme. But then they'll, uh, I think, in that final scene after he's like you know taped in blood, and there's this very like slow dirge version of it that's mm-hmm. very haunting um yeah it's interesting and then and uh, i think in another director's hands this but i i think the reason why this film works so well is because the cinematography is so thoughtful that there mm-hmm. is that it's hard on on its face to get meaning out of it but it and maybe i'm not for everybody but i can feel the meaning there even if i can't grasp it yeah and i think that meaning is in the the camera work or the answers to all the the movie itself asks a lot of questions certainly more than it answers the cinematography answers a lot of it and i think that dynamic works because travis is that blank slate yeah and and i think another director would not have 
done it that way and it would have been a very different probably nowhere near as effective film and i think because there's so much beauty in the film whether it be um you know the way that some things are lit or the music or everything else i think is the reason why that climax of the film that climax of the film is, is brutal and violent no matter what, but I feel like yep. it's part of the reason it feels so much more excessive is because it took a very long time to get to that point. Yeah. And then, like, it's just how grungy and grimy, and even just the way the film was shot, it takes on more of a yellowish tone, like a more sepia tone at that part of the film. Right. Just things, it feels like it loses all of its color, and it just becomes nothing but yellows and reds and just insanity. And I feel like that that shootout in the end is earned because of what built up to that point right it makes it much more stark given that there's nothing like it up until that point yeah like you get the shit you get the shooting in of the of the robber but that's it there's not really many other moments of violence in the film i'll i'll take it back to uh the film you discussed in a recent episode with uh savage harbor uh (laughs) <laughs> it's a stallone <laughs> uh audition okay yeah with where it it feels like a very different film through most of it and then there's that kind of shift towards the end that feels earned because it, you know it, there are plenty of horror films that keep you you know scared the whole time or, or that you're being exposed to terror most of the time mm-hmm. and that it's a similar treatment in that it's kind of a different film leading up to it until there's that shift at the end and that makes it very interesting if nothing yeah. else no i completely agree um and i think the last thing i'll say is i'm not i've not seen all of scorsese's work there's a lot of his stuff i haven't seen um but scorsese even when he makes like violent films or you know he does his thing his films are usually a lot of fun like you watch Goodfellas yeah. or Casino, it's a good time at the movies. <laughs> right. This film is not fun. This no. film is not easy to watch. But I have more f- want to go back to it. Yeah, because I just There's I a lot feel to like unpack, it's, it? it's it's stimulating. <laughs> That's a very uncomfortable adjective to use on this film. <laughs> I meant mentally stimulating. You perv. <laughs> My Perf. bad. <laughs> um, the the last thing that I'll say about it, and it's not really even about the film, it's a note. So maybe I'll say something else after to do a more proper wrap-up. But something else that I've been watching lately is I finally dove in and watched 11-22-63. Ooh, I loved that show. It was, it was very good. I felt it lulled a little in the middle, um, but the beginning and end were really strong. Um I think there are some taxi driver references in 11.22.63. Do explain. Um, so the first one is easy to say it's coincidence, and and but the second one, I think, ties it up. When um, Travis parks along waiting for the Palantine rally, mm-hmm. a cop comes up to the window and says, hey, you can't park here. you got to move along. Mm-hmm. Right, and then gives him, you know, Travis starts to give him shit, and he's like, man, don't mess with me, I'm having a bad day, get out of here, and he he obliges. That same turn of events happens in 11-22-63, when, um, um, I forget 
the name of the character, uh, pulls up waiting for the political rally or mm-hmm. the political parade where this assassination yeah, is going to take place and he's asked to move along. So that could be coincidence, right? Except there is a line unrelated to that movie or uh, unrelated to that scene, but there's a direct line from Taxi Driver in 112263, and that is the cost of the time with the prostitute. It is $15 for 15 minutes, $25 for half an hour. It's a weird It is said thing. like that. It is so specific, and it is exact in both, which makes me think that is a direct reference, huh. and therefore the earlier or later, depending on which, uh, that scene where he's parked up waiting for the political rally and asked to move along by a police officer is also a reference to Taxi Driver. And then let's not forget the scene where Lee Harvey Oswald says, I'm going to go Travis Bickle on your ass. <laughs> <laughs> right, there's that. I don't think that one has any connection. I don't see that. Um. <laughs> but yeah, another film or, or, um, about... A political assassination, which makes sense. So, yeah, I, I caught that just by chance, happened to watch these two things in the same day. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, there you go. Okay. Um, I think I've exhausted everything that I can think of to say on Taxi yeah. Driver at the moment. I'm that's sure as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to think of fucking something. But <laughs> Well, that's I, I think there will always be that with this film, which is why it's so evergreen. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no end to things you could analyze or say on this film. This is going to probably be a very long episode because there's a new feature that I'd like to add into the podcast. Yeah! Um, where... We talk to somebody, one of our friends, one of our listeners, um, and we find out what's on their shame lists, right? You've heard us go on and on and on about what's on our shame lists as we tick things off, but what's on our shame listeners' shame lists? <laughs> I'm going to use it as often as I can. Recordings um, so, from the shame listeners. <laughs> so this week, I sat down with my uh, co-worker, who is also... Uh, edited a couple of our TV episodes. Tyler? Dina oh. No, not Tyler. Though I will, I, I should do one with Tyler. Uh, Dina Volani. And I She's talked walked her. past the camera a couple times, hasn't she? Yes, she has. She Hi, has, Dina. absolutely. Um, so here's a, a clip. I think it runs about 10 minutes of my conversation with Dina on what's on her shame list. Cue the audio. <laughs> Hi, Dina. <laughs> Hi, Nick. Um, so there's a there's this new thing that I want to do on the podcast where we bring in people that we know or people that we run into, fans of the show, and we... And I'm definitely a fan. Ooh, a fan. I know, right? <laughs> and um, so that we can hear what's on your shameless and celebrate that. So celebrating my shameless. Yes. We celebrate shameless. Okay. Yep, that's okay. that's well we try to. We try okay. to. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. We, we wanna we wanna bring it all to the light and celebrate that we you know, there are things that we haven't seen and that's okay and we'll watch them together and walk we'll, to the light, Carolyn. Yes. Walk Ooh, to nice. the light, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> so I first recruited my coworker Dina Volani. Um, That's to, me. She's uh, going to be our little uh, guinea pig on this part, of this this new initiative. 
Um, so I asked her to come up with three or four uh, films that are on her shame list. So, Dina, where do you want to start? Well, let's start, let's go back a little ways and start with uh, Deliverance. Ooh. I know, <laughs> I know. Now, it's one of those movies where, now let me give you a background. I do have a background in film. Um, yeah, studied film in college and in grad school and then worked in it for a while. Yeah, and on the production so, side. On the production side, yes. And Deliverance is just one of those movies where you've seen bits and pieces of it, you know what happens, and you just don't want to <laughs> see it. <laughs> well, I, I, I imagine this is on a lot of people's shame list for the same reason, and it's on my shame list for the exact same reason, where it's always listed in, like, the top 100 films ever exactly, created. Exactly, it's, it's It's, you know, ubiquitous in that sense, but if you know anything about it, it's really hard to like pull the trigger and actually put it in and sit down and watch it. Yeah, because you know what's coming up. You know what's <laughs> going to happen. You've you've heard about it. You've read about it. You've seen the dueling banjos. <laughs> you've seen the little the little boy really not playing it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, you you know you know making him squeal like a pig. You know those different pieces of the movie, but you just can't watch it yeah well so that's where i am with it and and it's actually not too dissimilar from the film that we're going to be taking on today um that is taxi driver yes. that that one's has a similar it's it's kind of in you were talking before we recorded it's in that like pantheon of films where you watch it once and you recognize what a good film it is mm -hmm. and and the quality that went into it and you it it may even, you know, stimulate your mind, make you think, but you're never really want to go through that experience again. Nope, I'm good. <laughs> I don't ever need to see it again. Um, that, you know, that goes along with um, uh, The Sixth Sense. I saw it in a theater when it came out, and I never, ever, ever need to see it again. <laughs> but M. Night Shyamalan, it was, he put together an incredible film. Yep. You didn't even, I didn't see it. Ha what was going to happen at the end. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. But... <laughs> I just never, ever need to see it again. <laughs> you did. I'm good. I'm good. I'm All right. Good. What's next? All right. Next. Um, we'll go with, and I'm I, this one I am truly ashamed <laughs> that I have not seen it, and that is Do the Right Thing. I think everyone should see it, and I need to just sit myself down <laughs> and watch it. Um, I have seen bits and pieces of it. I've, I've uh, studied a few pieces of it, but I've never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. And... For Spike Lee to make this when he made it, I think it was very, very uh, prominent and part of not only our social our society where we all should watch it, um, and it was reflective of sort of a stereotype, but also of what really was happening. You know, so he, he kind of overindulged a little bit in that respect, but I think that was good. Yeah. To show that how we do stereotype people, I, even Italians, and I'm Italian. <laughs> and I know they were going back and forth with the Italian dude, you know what I'm saying? So. I, I just saw uh, commercials for that new uh, master class program where famous people, you can pay to watch a video of them, like, teaching what they're really good at. And Gordon Ramsay does one, let me teach you how to cook. Spike Lee does one about oh. uh, directing. And in the trailer for it, he's talking about do the right thing. 
And something that he said in that that I thought was really cool is that both the character that he plays and the owner of the pizza shop, Mm -hmm. from Spike Lee's perspective, they're both right. Like, neither of them are wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so intriguing. Like, that's that's why the conflict Mm -hmm. is so valid. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that that he. Cho- it, it, I think for a lot of writers, directors, it's easy to have to do it in such a way where one person's right and the other person's wrong. But yep. for for him to create it where they're both right, I found that really interesting. Oh, I can totally see that. Now in, th- that's the one scene I've I've seen just a piece of it. Yeah, because one of my students showed it or talked about it in class said, well, pull that up. Okay. So we pulled it up. We just seen that little piece where they're going back and forth. Yeah. And <laughs> calling each other so many different names. <laughs> I mean, it was it was amusing, but it wasn't. Yeah. You know? I, I think it lends credibility to um, how serious and complicated these racial conflicts are. Absolutely. That, that it's not... <laughs> black and white (laughs) and it's not and it's not i mean uh, just to to pull something out for me i I was told a long time ago when i was younger oh dina's not white she's italian (laughs) i'm like what right (laughs) i'm like okay you know so there's so many different pieces of us it's not just black and white or yellow or red or whatever you want to call anybody you're just you're who you are yeah and and I think that's what he was trying to get at a little bit, even though I have not seen the film. <laughs> right. We, we We're should talking see, about it. We should see you it. You should see it and then yeah. see if any of this makes this sense. sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so yeah. what's next? Um, well, I was told I didn't think that this was a bad one. This should not be on my shame list. But Mr. Nick Richards over here, um, in his wise self, maybe? <laughs> I say it questioningly. He said that I should feel shame for not seeing Mean Girls. It's so good. <laughs> and and you have but like I think why I'm continually intrigued by the concept that Michael and I came up with for this particular take on a movie review um podcast with the idea of going at it from the shame list is it's so like anybody that I know that's passionate about movies even people that aren't that passionate about movies there's that instant reaction when somebody says they haven't seen something that you love your reaction and i know you've done oh, this I've too done to, to me when we've, we've sat here in the studio and, some like it hot and, and i've and i've never seen it and then the reaction oh. is how can you have never seen that like exactly. it's so good so for for me mean girls is one of those where especially it. with the the writing tina fey's writing yeah. Um, it's, it is just so good that I am putting that on your shame list. <laughs> I, 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 I own it. I own it. Cause I love Tina Fey. Yeah. You know, and, but I, it's just one thing I've, I've never seen it. It, I, I'm a little older than Nick. So I think that was in a different time, time period for me. Right. It didn't hit in that prime, like exactly. movie absorption phase of your life. Mine was more the Brat Pack. Right. You know, <laughs> that was sort of my, my genre, my time, like, oh, you know, 16 Candles and Breakfast Club. Yeah. And, um, I was a little young for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but still, that was still in my. Still in that era. Still in that era. So sure. I get that, you know, um, Goonies and oh, and Goonies. Back to the Future and that was sort of when I was a kid. Back to the up. Future starring Eric Stoltz, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We were we were just having a conversation earlier <laughs> about Eric Stoltz and 
and how he started out as Marty McFly. Exactly, and although he really was wonderful and some kind of some kind of wonderful, he was he was some kind of wonderful <laughs> and some kind was. of wonderful. Mary Stuart Masterson was just a little bit better. <laughs> but those are those are three. I mean, I have more on my list. Um, I know. My film friends would have a problem with me not seeing Rosemary's Baby. Mm, yeah, which we... Did we do... I don't think we did an episode on it, but I watched it again this Halloween, so I referenced it in one of our episodes. But yeah, really, really cool movie. It is, and, and I, that's Betty Betty Davis in that Who was in that that's, one? That's... Um, who was it? God. I can see her face, and Betty Davis has those eyes, and it wasn't her. <laughs> She, uh, Betty Davis has Betty Davis eyes. Has those Betty Davis eyes. Mia Farrow. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. With that he cute was, little that short cute little, haircut mm-hmm. that she gets. Yeah, when she, I don't know if that was before or after she was married to Frank Sinatra. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, yep, so <laughs> Rosemary's Baby is probably one that, again, I know about it, don't really want to see it. Because <laughs> of the, you're, I know you're... Uh, a, a little more cautious when it comes to the horror genre. Yes, it's, it's not you, it's not my cup of tea. Right. <laughs> it's not my cup of tea, you know, and it just sticks with me. Like, I remember when Poltergeist came out, and yeah. I saw it, you know, and, and I was a kid, and I said, can we watch a ball game now? <laughs> right. Because it was, at that time, it was really freaky. Yeah. You know, bring back the good luck, Carolina, <laughs> in the beginning of this little little talk here. But yeah, like Nightmare on Elm Street, I never really sat down and saw, or Night of the Living Dead. Those sort of things are just not... Outside of your interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if it's a good thriller sort of thing, I I can kind of get into it a little bit. Um, But there's just so much of that in the real world. I don't need to see it I can watch the news. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what it feels like sometimes. Sometimes I'm like that about drama. Um yeah. and and not not necessarily a drama as mm-hmm. a as a uh, uh a genre. As a genre, but um like reality T V shows where yeah. where the majority of it is just them bickering and being catty. Yeah. Like I don't enjoy that because like I don't need any more of that. Right. So that's probably a, kind that. of a similar kind of reaction. From different stimuli. No, I totally get that because that's why I don't watch that stuff either. Yeah. I mean, I have no interest in knowing what the Kardashians are doing. That's why I really love the Great British Baiting Show because they're so supportive <laughs> of each other. They really are. And it makes my heart so happy. Oh my goodness. You're just so sweet. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> okay, Dina. Well, thanks for helping us out with this. Oh, thank and you. And if and when you see any of these, you'll have to come back on and tell us what you thought. Of all of these, I would probably watch Mean Girls and Do the Right Thing. So okay. when I do, I will let you know. All right. And Thank we'll you. never hear your thoughts on Rosemary's Baby. Uh, no. Or Deliverance. <laughs> or Deliverance. <laughs> all right. Thanks. thanks. And then um, also, you know, it's going to be a little bit longer just because I need to make right by two of our sponsors. Hell um, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to go super in-depth with these, um, but I want to talk about them. Um, so I'm going to read the back of the boxes as I do. Talk a little yeah. bit about it, and then mention any pertinent special features. So, cool. from, from my from our sponsors, uh, one of which is a company called Blue Underground that I Ooh. I was following for a very long time. They were doing special edition DVDs back in the day, and then moved on to the Blu-ray market. And a lot of uh, really interesting Italian horror films, like a lot of the Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci films, uh, were only seen on blu-ray for the first time because of them giallo um, films yes 
I learned. I, I remember that term that yeah. you taught me. <laughs> and then um, uh, uh, Bill Lustig, who runs the company, he's best known for directing the movie Maniac and a couple other nice. films. <laughs> he, he used to work for Anchor Bay making special edition oh, DVDs sure. for them. And okay. he broke off from them and did his own company. So he, he, the first release I've got is a release from them called The House by the Cemetery. Ooh. Ooh. This is it's done by a filmmaker named Lucho Fulci. It's one of my favorites of his. Back of the box says, um, the the tagline is terribly great. Read the fine print. You may have just mortgaged your life. Ooh. <laughs> a young family moves from their cramped New York City apartment to a spacious new home in New England. But this is no ordinary house in the country. The previous owner was the deranged Dr. Freudstein, whose monstrous human experiments have left a legacy of bloody mayhem. Now someone, or something, is alive in the basement, and home sweet home is about to become a horrific hell on earth. Uh, Catriona McCall, Palo Malco, Anya Pironi, uh, Carlo De Mejo, and Dagmar Lassender star in this outrageous Italian shocker from the godfather of gore, Lucio Fulci. Blue Underground is now proud to present The House by the Cemetery, a new 4K restoration from the original uncut and uncensored camera negative, fully loaded with exclusive new and archival extras. I've owned a couple copies of this film. I've got two <laughs> different Blu-rays now, one from the UK and one for the here in the States. I had a DVD before. I love this movie. Nice. It's, it sounds, to me, just based on that description, like a mashup of Amityville Horror, Evil Dead, and Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> No Rocky Horror Picture Show. Imagine, <laughs> do you remember season one of American Horror Story? Yeah, yep. Imagine all the stuff about the doctor and the experiments in the house. Yes. Take that, mix yes. it with Evil Dead, and okay. you kind of have it this It needed movie. more of that storyline, I thought. That was the only thing that I really, the first season, like I yeah, wanted more that of was it. Like, that was some of my favorite stuff, and I think that's part of the reason why I like this film so much. And actually, I saw this film before I saw that season, but like that was one of the things I liked about it. So you have, it, um, I love this this trend that Italian filmmakers were doing, where they would shoot part of the film in the United States and then shoot all the 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 the, the stage the stage stuff in Italy. Um, okay. And, and Italian films never shot with sync sound, so they had actors of all different nationalities all acting together, and they would just dub it over later. So a lot of these Italian films, <laughs> we'll I usually fix it in post. Yeah, I usually recommend watching dubbed because I, my personal rule is if. Whoever, whatever the nationality is of the lead actor, if the lead actor <laughs> is American, one. I want to watch with American dubs. If the lead actor is <laughs> Italian, I watch Italian subtitles. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. that's kind of like my go-to. But this film is great just because it's so boisterous and weird. Um, re- uh, really interesting cinematography. Uh, Lucio Fulci never quite had the eye that Dario Argento did, but he made up for it with his willingness to experiment and just some of the most cringeworthy gore that I have ever seen like it's not one thing just to have someone get their throat slit no you're gonna get it slut slit like three or four times like they're trying to fucking saw off your head and it just makes it so cringy to look at the music is really weird and interesting and has this great like synth piano score going that it just it feels very manic and weird Nice. And then the fact that there's a creature in the basement who is, you know, trying to drag a young child down to the basement. 
Smooth. It's just, it's it's creepy. It's weird. Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's super scary. It's definitely a gore fest, but there are some really creepy imagery on it. And okay. uh, I don't know. It's it's it's. I'm not doing a very good analysis of it, but I just love this movie. <laughs> and if you've never seen a Lucio Fulci film, um, the 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 three I tell people to begin with is either The Beyond, this film House by the Cemetery, or City of the Living Dead. Um, I All think right. those are I th- think of three of his most boist- most I keep saying boisterous, but some of his most interesting films. <laughs> um, so special features include um, there's a new audio commentary with uh, Troy Holworth, who directed who who wrote a book on Lucio Fulci, deleted scenes, theatrical trailers, the whole nine yards, uh, and then there's a bunch of special features. There's Meet the Boyles interviews with stars Catriona McCall and Paolo Melco. Children of the Night interviews of Giovanni Frezza and Sil- Sylvia Colatina. Tales of Laura Gittleson interview with star Dagmar Lassender. My Time with Terror interview with star Carlo De Mejo. A Haunted, ha- a, a haunted House Story interviews of co-writers Dardano Sacchietti and Lisa Briganti. To, <laughs> this one just makes me laugh. To Build a Better Death Trap interviews <laughs> of cinematographer Sergio Salvati. And special effects artist um, Maurizio Trani. I've watched most of these, and I think the ones with the with the effects artists and the cinematographers are the most interesting. I just don't feel like the actors have a whole lot to say. Okay. Um, but then there's one I really like on here. It's called "Calling Dr. Freudstein." It's an interview with Stephen Thrower, who's my favorite like film analysis person. He's an English guy, and he just he spins such a lovable yarn about this film of why it's important and why you should see it. Nice. Um, Very cool. And that is a lot of uh, interviews. I didn't even read them all. <laughs> so Jeez. Many. And then I got one other to talk about. This one is from another one of our sponsors called Arrow Academy. Uh, so Arrow Video, which I've done stuff from before, they have a side company called Arrow Academy. It's kind of like their criterion almost. Um, okay. And it's a movie by Jim Jarmusch called limits of control nice uh the back of the box says when it comes to american independent cinema there's no one quite like jim jarmusch the the celebrated auteur behind such classics as stranger than paradise and only lovers left alive eschewing his usual american landscapes in favor of a variety of locations throughout urban and rural spain his 2009 anti-thriller the limits of control remains one of the most alluring and multi-layered creations an enigmatic loner, played by Isaac de Bankhole, who is in Black Panther and Ghost Dog, arrives in Spain, instructed to make contact with a series of strangers in different locations throughout the country, each of whom provides a cryptic clue which propels him further towards his mysterious goal. But who is the lone man? Why is he here? And how does the recurring figure of an alluring femme fatale, played by Paz de la Herta, fit into the puzzle? Boasting stunning cinematography by award-winning Christopher Doyle and featuring cameos from an array of celebrated character actors including Tilda Swinton, Gail Garcia Bernal, and the late John Hurt, The Limits of Control is a languid, hauntingly beautiful film that combines the best of American and European art house sensibilities. So this film, best described, is take like a spy thriller, like a James Bond movie or... um, you know, um, I can't think of other ones, but you know, spy thrillers, you know, lots of location Mission changes, Impossible. Mission Impossible, yeah. things like that. Remove all the action <laughs> and show the scenes in between the action that we never see. Like, okay, I, you know, James Bond just gets to Spain 
And, you know, he just had to kill someone in his hotel or something like that. Or he just made love to a woman. Well, let's show him in bed afterwards. We never show him making love. He's in bed afterwards with the woman just contemplating his life. Or, you know, he's he's about to do a stakeout to meet with some um, some person that he has to kill. But let's show him getting coffee beforehand. It's like they... It's so fascinating. They take out all the scenes of action and just have these moments of him at art museums and things in between as he's waiting for his for things to happen. It's like almost the waiting game. And I'm... Yeah. And the way I'm... It may sound very dull to people and it, for some people it might really be, but I found it weirdly hypnotizing because the cinematography is mesmerizing. It just kind of really ropes you in. And like, it's even great to like the point where... Where the film's leading towards him, this assassination, you think, when he gets to like the the fortified fortress, and he's like, "Oh, this is where shit's gonna happen." Here's the payoff, you know what I mean? And he's looking at through a pair of binoculars, and he's looking at where he has to go, and then it cuts to Bill Murray, who plays a character in this, on the phone yelling at someone. He's the guy who has to be assassinated, and he turns on the light, and the fucking spy is in the room already. And he goes, how'd you get in here? And the guy goes, with a lot of creativity. We don't even see him enter the place. They cut out all the action. And like, it's, it's, it's so interesting the way that they do this. And it's, it's, it's saying, it's like, what do we know about the killer? Who are these people? We never find out. And that's weirdly, huh. it's, it's very much an art house film. Um, and it's going to frustrate a lot of people, but I found it weirdly appealing in this, in its, its absurdness. And it, it's treated all very straight way. Some of the characters are really out there, like Tilda Swinton, her entire scene is she's just talking about movies. Like, the characters are very weird, and he's just reacting to them, or not reacting. Yeah. And there's a scene that just cracks me up at one point where every time he goes to a cafe, he orders two cappuccinos and two separate glasses. It's his very specific order. Even if he's on a train, he's drinking them out of like foam cups. It's two cappuccinos and two separate glasses. And he has this conversation, and like he's in another country. He doesn't, and they always ask him, "Do you speak Spanish?" No. So it's like they always have to like kind of work through this 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 language barrier. And he's trying to explain to the or- to to the guy who's taking his order that he wants it in two separate glasses instead of a double cappuccino. Um, and at one, he goes to the same place two or three times throughout the movie before he meets someone, and uh, he keeps getting the same waiter, and he sits, he's got his drinks, and, the, and Tilda Swinton sits down, and she's just you know taking over the scene and everything, and she grabs one of his cappuccinos, and he just looks down, and the waiter in the distance sees that happen, and he runs over and just slides the cappuccino back over to him, and just <laughs> exits the frame. It's the funniest damn thing because they're not doing it for laughs. <laughs> so. Limits of control. If you want an, as they say on here, an anti-thriller, it's kind of it's it's. <laughs> but see, now I know what that means. Just yeah. when you first said it, I'm like an anti-thriller. That it's, sounds. <laughs> it's literally the only one of its kind. Um, and between the two releases, I think this one's got the better special features. So it's obviously in high definite. It's obviously a high definition Blu-ray. Original loss was DTS HD Master Audio in 5.1 and PCM 2.0. Um, optional English subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing. But then where it gets interesting is American in Europe, a new video interview with Jeff Andrew, author of Stranger Than Paradise, Maverick Filmmakers in Recent American History, and The Rights of Control, a new video essay on the film by author and critic Amy Simons. What makes these great is they really break down the appeal of this film and why it's interesting, who Jim Jarmusch is, what he was making up to this point, and what and how he's sub- subverting expectations of genre. And okay. there's only two things, but I like that they're really deep dive analytical 
essays. And it's not just someone talking to the camera. They've got, they, they're into cutting clips from the movies and everything as well. So it makes it very interesting. And then they got behind Jim Jarmusch, an archival documentary on the making of the film, and Untitled Landscapes, an archival feature at showcasing the film's locations. So those are my two, my two reviews. Superb. Uh, House by the Cemetery and The Limits of Control. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Anything else? I don't think so. I think we've talked enough. We yes. Okay feel free to just tell us to shut up um, yeah. I, I guess that's our cue to wrap things up and yep. the last little I don't know if it's a treat but I'm really excited about it last thing that you'll get to hear for the beginning of season 4 is our new credits that I recorded so we don't have to like stumble through all the places we're on and the people that we need to thank so um, I guess if you're not down with that we have two words for you watch movies Ooh, I peeked the microphone with that one. Nice. That's going to sound so bad in people's ears. (laughs) The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.